Hello and welcome back to another episode of You Want to Do What with Dan and Julie. Today we have Raven on, who is an archaeologist. Hi, how are you? I'm very good, thank you so much. How are you guys doing? Really well, thanks. It's a bit hot here. It's it's really hot here. (laughs) Yeah. And we're we're in a conservatory. You're in a conservatory? Oh gosh. Yeah, yeah, not ideal. Um, (laughs) So what what do you actually do, Raven? What is an archaeologist? What do they get up to? So an archaeologist essentially studies the human past by analyzing material remains. So pretty much everything we leave behind while living our lives will eventually get buried over time and be built on top of. And that means we kind of leave a hints and traces of what we used to do, how we used to live. And archaeologists dig that back up and try to piece together what humans in the past used to do, what they ate, what we, you know, what was important to them, everything like that. So my sort of knowledge of archaeology and archaeologists comes from uh, a TV show called Time Team that I used to watch when I was little, and maybe Indiana Jones. <laughs> um, so wh- <laughs> how, does, uh, how does somebody sort of fall into or go into archaeology? How did you get into it? For me, I was that really big nerd, even when I was a little kid, you know, I was obsessed <laughs> with ancient Egypt and the Greek mythology and all of that. So that was what I would do every Saturday morning. I'd go to the library and I'd get the, the little VHS tape of, I'm, da- I'm dating myself now. Um, <laughs> I get the VHS of Pegasus yeah, and Bellerophon. I get the books on the Great Pyramids. But everyone really, from, from my experience, you know, we always have our big heroes, Indiana Jones, all of mm-hmm. them, Lara Croft, even though they aren't true depictions of the the field they do help with the with so inspiring you, you don't have a, a gun hat and a whip i do have a hat no <laughs> gun no whip though <laughs> what kind of area of archaeology do you specialize in do you have sort of a time period that you sort of are more interested in yes so for me i am mostly egyptian and middle eastern but i also really love roman archaeology as well so that's what i studied in the university Okay. And how was uh, university studying those? It was really fun. Um, I w- it, it is a, a bit challenging. There's a lot of theory you have to learn. Of course, the very first archaeology 101 class, the professor asks who's here to study dinosaurs, and then half the <laughs> class gets disappointed. So <laughs> we have to weed out those people first. But, um, you know, it can be very intense, but it's super exciting, and it's pretty much like being a detective because you're only given a small part of the past and not everything lasts. Everything's decomposed, people rebuild, take things away. So when you're studying it, you really have to start looking for clues and trying to see a bigger picture. And then also, if you're lucky or the opposite, if depending on who you are, you get to learn some ancient languages that are very difficult. Um, so that's what I got to do. I got to learn hieroglyphs, which was really exciting for me. That's pretty cool. Actually, that was one of the things when I was uh, looking to go to university, I wanted to study classics because I loved the Greek mythology and uh, Greek uh, literature. And actually, one thing that put me off was uh, learning Latin, which was one of the common things to uh, learn with it. And I, I, I didn't want to do it. It was actually the put off for me. <laughs> Um, you know, it, it was very smart to not learn Latin, though, in my opinion. I, tr- yeah. I did it for a semester and it was terrible yeah 
So what made you so interested in ancient Egypt um, and sort of the Roman and, and that part of history? What really interests you about that? Well, I kind of grew up in the suburbs of Canada, so there wasn't really much going on there. And for me, having these fantastical stories of lands far away with these amazing buildings built thousands of years ago, and for me, that was really hard to grasp when I was little because, you know, in Canada, everything is maybe 200 years old. Mm. So for me, having that fascination with with what people used to do and how people made these amazing things and had all these, this art and these buildings that they did with only very primitive tools. And that was really exciting for me. And then the other thing was, I'm always, I was always very interested in old stuff and how things can tell a story. You know, Mm. there's, there's reading history, but then there's having an object and, having someone tell you how much you can learn just from this one piece of pottery or this one burial or one wall painting and having those, that kind of storytelling from just the little things that was really exciting for me. Uh, That is cool. I studied um, classics at school actually. um, And there was sort of an archeology span unit on it. And we studied people like um, Heinrich Schliemann, the guy who uh, discovered Troy. Oh yeah. Um, and like Howard Carter in Egypt and how their archaeology compared to what we can do now is, is just, it's a different sort of ball game. Does the future of archaeology sort of excite you, the possibilities of what we might be able to uncover from these items going forward? Oh, so much. There's, you know, if we're going back to Schliemann, he didn't really know what he was doing. He was also not a trained archaeologist at the time. So he was just digging and, and, hoping, you know, you know, hoping a prayer just to get something. And nowadays, you can do so much. We have ground penetrating radar to find features. We have drones, we have satellites. We know people that are identifying sites in ancient Egypt just from using satellites. And we have new technology like uh, LIDAR, which is helping us get through dense forests in Asia and South America. So the real in reality yeah people think we found everything but in reality there's so much left there was a um, and with technology there there was a a bbc program actually which talked about the uh, satellites um finding more pyramids in egypt under the desert and and you know in old cities and things that we never knew existed that must really get you excited so excited and one day fingers crossed i'll be able to either be part of a team that you know that finds one or even just helps ex- excavate it once it is found because it's you just never know it's you you have to always be ready to to be surprised which is a really fun part of the job so what was the process after university and then becoming an archaeologist what what was it you did how did you uh you get into it from there well uh i technically i am still in the process because it's not a very um, lucrative field we can put it that way um so so after you graduate your bachelor's you do have the opportunity to work depending on where you are but i know especially in the uk you can begin working in the commercial sector so doing all of the pre-construction archaeology that has to be done to make sure that nothing is being disturbed for a new building project so you can technically start working commercially after a bachelor's but if you want to 
get any more of a supervisory position. If you want to work abroad, maybe have your own dig in Greece or Egypt or anywhere like that, you probably would have to start getting a master's, even a supervisory position in commercial archaeology, for example. And then if you want to teach or if you want to supervise your own dig and kind of get the funding to be that person that makes all those big discoveries, you need a PhD. So there is quite a bit of education involved, plus a lot of field work. So in your bachelor, you have to do at least one field work uh, experience, a field school. It can be anywhere you want as long as it's approved. And then after that, you really have to try and get as much as uh, as much experience as you can. And that would well, really help. So that's a lot of uh, university and education to sort of get to a level where you can do it commercially. Um, once you've sort of done that yeah. uh, and you, you're, you know, you're on the commercial sites or, or you're off on digs, what's an average day for an archaeologist? You know, what do you do? Ooh, it, it does vary a little bit but the general thing if you're digging for example in the summer on a field school somewhere you wake up very early probably around 5 a.m maybe earlier and you either have a quick breakfast or you help make the breakfast that you'll be eating on site you drive off to site you get there six in the morning because the sun will kill you if you don't start early <laughs> and you dig for it's bad. Uh, but yeah, you start digging and you have a little bit of a mid-morning break for breakfast. And then you go dig again. And then you have another little coffee break sometimes. And around 1 or 2 p.m. you break and you have lunch. Uh, then there's usually a nice little siesta, which was my favorite part for digging in <laughs> Greece, for example. You know, a little like two, three-hour nap, which is always nice. Um, and then afterwards, you have to do, either you go back to the field, depending on where you're digging, when the sun is less hot, or it's lab work. So a lot of it would be washing the pottery that you dug up that day, drying the pottery. If you are a specialist, there'll be some drawing of pottery, or you'll be analyzing any bones that were found, any shells, anything you know that maybe isn't as typical as, as pottery, per se, because we find a lot of pottery <laughs> and then you kind of do all those things so much pottery tell me it's, it's it's like the plastic of the ancient world you can tell so it's much from it, it though, can't you? you really can from if you get the right pieces you can tell what kind of piece like what kind of vessel it was what it was used for sometimes if it's a whole vessel you can reconstruct it you might be able to find food residue in the bottom. I know someone from Egypt harvested, like they found yeast residue and they were able to grow it and make bread. Wow. Ancient Egyptian bread, which is crazy. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I've so that's another um, thing. a dig of a mammoth, actually, a bit different. But as soon as they dug it up, it like just stuck his hand in, pulled off a bit of meat and ate it. He was like, who else has tried a mammoth before? Oh my God. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was kind <laughs> of crazy. Just doing that. <laughs> no. No, I wouldn't either. Um, so what are some of like, the things you, you obviously said a dig, but a dig is um, it's not just you know you out there with a spade. What, what sort of like, the techniques and things that you guys do uh, during the dig? Well, first thing would be to, to find the spot to dig, and that actually happens off-site with a lot of 
studying records or um, using satellites, survey work on site where you're just kind of walking up and down to see if you find any artifacts on the surface that might suggest something underneath. Then you have to map out your dig. We always use grids because whatever we find has to be located directly in the same spot. We don't want to take anything out without uh, marking its location. And then we use a lot of different materials. We use pickaxes, uh, depending on where you are, of course. And if you're in, uh, you know, somewhere in Europe, you mostly will use pickaxes to get at the hard dirt for the main things. But then we have our very famous trowels that we, we all love. <laughs> and that's for more of the fine work. Yeah, we love our trowels, uh, leveling them out. We use that. But then you can use something as simple and as uh, very delicate as a spoon, or if you're digging out post holes or small areas that your trowel can't get in. We use brushes for delicate materials. We have pretty much every kind of tool imaginable. Some commercial pl uh, places also have you know, big bulldozers and things to take out large amounts of dirt, as long as we know that it's not you know, gonna damage anything. So what's the so coolest it is thing, quite a varied thing you've ever found? Oh, that's a hard question. Mm. Everyone always asks this, and it's always very difficult <laughs> for any archaeologist to, to answer. Because, you know, for us, even the smallest little weird thing could be super exciting. And then everyone else looks at it and goes, oh, it's just a weird piece of pottery. <laughs> but I will say one of the coolest things that I found is um, I found an oil lamp. That's cool. An ancient Greek oil lamp. It was very exciting. That is cool. And yeah. um, it was a complete one. Yeah. What was it made so of? I was really happy is it um, ceramic? It was ceramic, yes. And oh, it was yeah. from around the 4th century BCE. Wow, that's mad when you think about it. Isn't yeah. It? That's like you, you holding that and just thinking yeah. like, that someone lit this all that time ago. Yeah. You get such a high, it's amazing because it's, it's, yeah. It's amazing to, to find something that hasn't been touched for 2,000 years and no one knew was there. With history like that, especially ancient Egypt, what always amazes me is when the Romans came to Egypt, the pyramids were already ancient to them. So when you study all this period of history, you yeah. see humankind like develop and yeah. it's, it's so cool. It's crazy. Well, if you, you know, even to drive that further, when King Tut was alive, the pyramids were already 1,000 years old. Just, That's just, mad. Yeah, something. Yeah, the history how, is just crazy. So when how did they build? Right, I, you probably get this all quite all the time. How did they yes. build the pyramids all those thousands of years ago? Like, how <laughs> is that? And they they perfect triangles, aren't they? Like the symmetry is perfect on them. They're pretty. They're pretty darn close. Uh, I actually have a, a YouTube video about that, uh, how they built it. But awesome. the it there's a lot of complicated, you know bureaucracy and the people arguing about how it was built but we know that they had the materials even you know 4,000 years ago to cut granite and limestone with using very simple stone tools and copper saws and drills we've done a lot of experimental archaeology on how to do that so they would dig the quarry for the the great pyramid of Giza the big one mm -hmm. was about 350 meters away from Giza so it was very close. And then they would, yeah, they'd cut the bricks, uh, cut the, those stones and use ramps. They, we found evidence from tombs showing that they've been able to move very large statues of about 12 tons 
by using sledges on the sand and just by wetting the sand in front of it to make more of a smoother surface to, to drag it over. I think what interests and me it, about it does, these, it seems... these people is they're so ingenuitive with what they had. You know, we always look to solve issues and we yeah. just think technology, but they didn't have access to anything that so they just they solved problems sometimes the most simple ways but it seemed to work for them that's it usually the best answer is the simplest one and people really especially the ancient aliens people they just want to overcomplicate <laughs> something that if you really work hard enough to do you can do it i i have to say i have watched that ancient aliens series on the history channel i've watched a few of them and they produce it in a way that makes you go oh actually yeah that could be true but then obviously yeah. a lot of it's you know hyperbole oh yes a lot of it is it angers me to watch that show whenever it comes <laughs> on i get very angry so you're obviously um uh away on digs um you're in labs you, it's not it's not an office job is it you're you're all over the place you, you travel and things like that um is that something you really enjoy about it i do i really love the the opportunity to travel and i i know i've been very fortunate to have the opportunity to because a lot of people they do you know you can get a job in the office just working on the post excavation pottery drawing writing reports but for me to be able to, to just kind of pick up and go wherever and wherever they need help essentially uh, is really fun and to be honest I have not yet been paid to do so but being able to do it is also a very exciting thing and it, you get to see some amazing places. So being an archaeologist, you work in teams um, and your personality that, that you must need, you must need to be sort of outgoing, maybe um, quite meticular with the actual process. Is there any other sort of personality traits that somebody would need to, to go into this or would be preferred? You have to be OK with getting dirty for sure. <laughs> like, you will find dirt in places you did not know existed. Um, so that's a big one you have to just kind of yeah and just be prepared to it is a very physical job you have to be crouching a lot you have to be putting your body in uncomfortable positions you have to be waking up super early in the morning and but, but then also you have to stay up super late at night because it's a very social thing so it's it is it is a, a heavy intense period when you're digging but it's the most fun experience ever because everyone is in the same they, they all like the same things and they're all as passionate as you are and you really just find your people and then it doesn't feel like it's as emotionally or physically draining as it really is when you talk about the social side every time i watch time team they were in the pub every night after they finished digging yeah yeah that's it you just kind of finish digging you need a, a glass of wine or a, you know a pint of beer and... <laughs> it really helps as well to just get that connection with the people you're working with because it's a very high stress job because you're under the sun physically exerted so you need to make sure that you have a good relationship with who you're working with so what sort of um positives have you taken out of the industry what are some of the things you absolutely love about it i love to be honest i love getting dirty I just love being in, you know, like a kid in a, in a sandbox, essentially. The big positive is that I love the social aspect. You find people that really, that you can really identify with and that are very genuine and just as nerdy as you are. <laughs> Another big thing for me is I love studying people. 
people are so interesting and we don't often give them enough time to really understand it. And if you look at history, you can really see that we've been the same for thousands of years, you know, that everyone's had the same dramas, the same hopes and dreams. And it really puts your own life into perspective. So that's what I really love about it because it really makes you check in with yourself and it takes you out of yourself. You realize that, you know, you're just, you don't have to be as kind of worried about things and, and everything. It's, it's very human. I always say archaeology is a very human profession. So I was thinking about sort of similar thing recently. Um, how comes that in the last five or six or maybe even 8,000 years, humankind developed civilizations? Because we've been around for what, like a couple hundred thousand years as we are now. Why all of a sudden did we just start creating civilizations, you know, 8,000 years ago? Well, it was a lot of, a lot of things had to go right. I'm not a big expert on prehistory, so I can't give you the most exact definition of it. But if you look at how we evolved, you can see that there, there came a point where we were able to form more of a community and with changing climates and things, we started to settle into certain areas. And once you are able to, for example, begin to farm, like some crops start to grow. And as our brains develop as early humans to be able to realize, okay, if we plant this, then this will grow and we can domesticate this and we can control it. Then you start to be more settled. And then from there, seeing as, if, as you have more access to food and better nutrition, then you're able to have more children and you can be more sedentary. You don't have to look for food, which means that you can kind of grow and then other people will also come to that same area because it, it, it has a good place to, to farm or anywhere like that. And then you have to start working together with things. And that's kind of how civilizations kind of form it's a very you know it's humans trying to survive and that we found that's the best way to thrive and then once you can just wait for your crops to grow you don't have to worry so much about eating the next day or where your food's going to come from so then you can focus on other things so it's kind of like a, a snowball a effect long thing. it's it, you know one thing leads yeah. to the next leads to the next and it gets better and faster Exactly. So that's how we've been able to just kind of skyrocket. And even in the last century, you've seen how much we've been able to progress. Mm. And it's just, it's human evolution is just absolutely insane. And I have recently read a really short book about it for, by Robert Kelly. And it finally, you get to like actually understand for me getting, you know, the early human stuff that I hadn't studied before. And you see how, yeah, we're all, we've always been the same. And then with that extra time, we can do more and more, and then we can experiment more. There's also a really bad joke, uh, sort of a joke, that beer is the reason we have civilization. <laughs> is it? And yes, well, it's, you get the, the grain, and you realize if it ferments a little bit in some liquid or something, it starts to bubble, and it's not a bad beverage. But in order to make beer in mass amounts, you need farming you need agriculture you need to be able to irrigate your fields which means that you need to have an organized society and all that fun stuff i think the other thing is uh humans we're, we're quite we're quite lazy keeping a pen of animals yeah. and growing stuff is easier than going out finding it and killing it <laughs> um, in my opinion anyway that's it yeah 
it's more reliable too. It's a safer way to uh, make sure you can eat through the winter, especially if you're not more of a hostile environment or climate. So what would be some of the uh, less favorable things regarding the job? It's not very well paid. Not at all. Um, depending on where you are, but especially in um, certain areas, most areas, except maybe Australia, I hear you're going to get paid very well. Uh, but it's not very well paid. It can be very difficult to get a job, especially if you want to get a higher up position or if you want to teach. And it's also, it can be very unreliable because a lot of the work, even commercial work, is contract based. So a lot of the time is you are working and Thursday comes around and you don't know if you're working on Monday. You have to, you wait for that call. So you can't really make a lot of plans and you can't really have a big financial future. Uh, you Sometimes you have to go where the work is. So it's also very hard to kind of cement yourself in one spot. So that's, those are the main challenges for sure. We, we do a little bit of research on the show. We talk a little bit about money and earnings. Um, and I did some research on figures for sort of salaries for archaeologists. I assume this is all commercial. Um, so they sort of range between twenty to 30,000. Does that sort of resonate with you? Does that make sense? Yeah, I would, I would say the lower ends of the 20s mm-hmm. would be like how, what you would expect if you're a trainee position from... And I am going off of UK because I have been looking for commercial work there mm-hmm. and I've been familiar with it. So it's about as a trainee position, you get between 18 and 20. And as a regular uh, excavator or site um, assistant, you get about 20 to 23, depending on where you are. And it can go up, but 30 would be maybe, you know, senior executive superver- supervisor level type thing. Got you. Is university the only way into archaeology or could say an amateur just uh, offer their services and go and help on a dig and maybe get in that way? Or do you, you need the PhD and the master's, as you said earlier? You, in order to do commercial, you definitely need a bachelor's, especially nowadays if you're doing um, that kind of work because it's a very regulated position. And there's a lot of legality involved around there. But in other countries, you can definitely, you know, sort of work your way up. You can become a trainee. You can become a, an archaeologist. But in order for you to sort of move up the ladder, let's say, they do supervisors and things, you do need more proper education. But that shouldn't stop anyone from trying archaeology because there's so many field schools out there that you can volunteer for without any training. And they'll take you on for two weeks to a month or more. And you can learn all the basics there and just really experience it and see if it's something you want to do. So what would be something that's uh, not in the job description that you have to deal with? Ooh, I would just say the early mornings. <laughs> I'm not a morning person. But the dirt's yeah, not too bad. Waking up at 5 a.m. Now you expect the dirt, you know. You just You don't expect... Maybe you don't, you see Indiana Jones and everyone and yeah, they're in dirty places, but they don't get dirty. Like you get dirty. So that's maybe <laughs> something to, to keep in mind. So how do you, um, yeah, no, just. How do you progress um, once you're in the industry? Um, you mentioned, you know, becoming supervisor on commercial. Is that just a case of experience and getting years under your belt? Pretty much. I, 
I don't have too much commercial um, experience in that sense, but in order to progress, you do need to have, you know, certain levels of experience within where you are working. That's the main thing. If you kind of are staying in one spot, that really helps. So if you're only digging in the UK or, or just in England and you know a lot of English history, English pottery, and you've done your paid your dues, essentially, you've done a few years, you can move up that way. It's all, it is all experience based. So it really does help to make sure you're not flying around to different countries every year to do work. Would you uh, still going to the industry knowing uh, what you know now? Yes, definitely. I, I tried to, to do the practical route and try and get a job that paid properly and was more reliable, but it ate me up inside and I just had to go back to my roots essentially and do what I love doing. Awesome. That's brilliant here. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I've had really interesting, really interesting chat. Thanks so much for having me. It was really fun. I just, I love talking about archaeology, so <laughs> any opportunity to do so. Where can uh, people find you on Instagram or and YouTube as you've uh, find me. earlier? Oh, yes. Uh, you can find me at Dig It With Raven on all the social platforms. Fantastic. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for coming on and um, we'll talk again soon. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, guys. And Thanks, Raven. Yeah, enjoy the rest of your day. And Thanks you. so much. Bye. Bye.